Hooray, hurrah. Once again, the smartest man in the world, Proofcast, takes to the ether, this time from the salubrious confines of the Fortress of Proofitude, located inside the Porpoise of Proofitude, right here in Lower California. It's Joe Perry from Aerosmith's birthday. He's a thousand. Now, if you're my age, and I hope you're not, um, uh, uh, Aerosmith was so insanely popular at my high school back in the 70s um, that um, all the guy jocks dressed up as girl cheerleaders and did a routine to this song at one of the assemblies. The tenderness. When you think about the love and the the undying devotion and the kind of sweetness that Aerosmith brings to the game, who could blame America for not being enraptured by them for all these years? What was my joke uh, in the 90s? Uh, it's going to take another comet hitting to Earth to quell these mighty dinosaurs' ceaseless perambulations about the globe. In the 70s, they did so much cocaine, they wouldn't play Europe because they were afraid they couldn't score coke in Europe in the 70s, where you would land in a Matterhorn of cocaine and a German wearing a David Soul leather wife-beating jacket would jump out and go, hey, Shotzi, who wants a bump? <laughs> And then another fine comedy routine of mine from the 90s was bands are so boring and sharing and caring now. Every 5% of this uh, uh, Jerry, uh, Ben and Jerry's chubby hubby peace pop goes to save the Tibetan ground squirrels. Aerosmith didn't ask you how you voted. Aerosmith went, how many people like pussy? <laughs> yeah. Um, you have to remember... The drugs we were on then, we weren't on Adderall and um, Molly and Meow Meow or whatever kids take now, cha-cha. We weren't vaping. We were smoking cigarettes and we were taking quaaludes and drinking vodka mixed with lemonade in a plastic jug and smoking marijuana. So you needed something that could communicate through that too. And I think you'll find it's this. I don't know why women spoke to us. Because they had no choice. I think much, much of man's history is written that way. When I waited on Joe Curry, he was, he was really... You can't talk off mic. Okay. <laughs> We're going to get letters if you talk off mic. <laughs> when I waited on him at City Lights, he, he was quite uh, shy and retiring. Oh, do tell. Please tell the City Lights Joe Perry story. Well, there's story. not much to tell. He, he was very... Uh, of course there is. I can remember almost all of this. <laughs> He came in with a bodyguard. Uh-huh. And, to a bookstore. Yeah. A beatnik bookstore. And, and my friend Gent, who uh, is uber discerning and reserved. No. And he's critical, an inconceivable snob about literature and music. Suddenly and <laughs> was very excited. Yeah. As he's, I'd never seen him before. And to the point where I, Joe Perry was a little bit worried. That, that we might... A man his age was taking an interest well, in him? That bo- <laughs> well, no, that both uh, Gent and I might, you know, shriek or act inappropriate. But we stayed on our side of the counter. What I think is so cute about it is that he was still shy and uh, effacing, self-effacing about that, considering he'd had a lifetime of women screaming and guys yelling and 
the excitement that he caused anytime he went anywhere. But this is the part of the story I want you to get to. He did. He was in City Lights bookstore. Uh-huh. Were, Buying a t-shirt for his son. Thank you. Well, I think that, that that's why he was a little bit shy and retiring is because <clears throat> maybe bookstores weren't his usual stomping ground. Now, the books that most people buy when they come to City Lights, I'm gonna, off the top of my head, I'm going to guess are Howl on the Road. Not so much Coney because, Island. because of the scorn that that one den- engender. Oh, right, because the counter, the counter stuff will yeah, look at yeah, cross you have to come up. Ginsburg. The, the tourists from Europe definitely go for the, the beat classics. But, uh, yeah, there's much more obscure territory to be had. I'm going to get this story wrong, but I'm going to tell it anyway because it's a Jeff Davis story, and it goes like this. He was going to City Lights, and he said, the staff's always mean to me when I go there. And I've got... <laughs> well, so he, he texted that's me. That's telling, isn't it? I was here what in L.A., was and he was in the city, and he texted me, and he said, what should I get at City Lights? And I said, get um, 12 Caesars by Suetonius, and I can't remember what the other book was. It was one of your choices. And he walked to the counter. Something and he, by Albert Cossary? It was something, yeah. It was like primary, uh, not primary colors. Um, uh, it, was, uh, it was a grouping like that. And he went to the counter with those two books. And the person behind the counter went, nice selection. <laughs> and he was like, they've never been. He goes, I've been going there 20 years. No one's spoken to me. <laughs> My City Lights routine was always, you'd go to the counter at City Lights. Which is in the middle of North Beach, right? In mm-hmm. the middle of an Italian food neighborhood next to Chinatown. Next to Chinatown. Yeah. So you, you could ask about, you could legitimately expect the staff to know what a Chinese or a Italian restaurant would be. And if you go to the counter and go, um, I'm looking for a good Italian place, the staff of City Lights go, yeah, I hope you find it. <laughs> good luck on that. Yeah, not the nicest. Um, Robert Frank just passed away. Who? The photographer, Robert Frank. Oh. And his book... Uh, the Americans had a preface by Jack Kerouac, his defining photography book. Wow. And how old was Robert Frank? 94. Oh my goodness. Swirling in the stars. Um, I love when you, uh, Jack Kerouac wrote the foreword to your book. Um, Robert Frank was Swiss, was he? Yeah, he was born in, Z- in uh, Zurich. And what was the story you were telling me today? He got pulled over for being Jewish oh God, and having a bottle of this. booze yeah. in the car? So, uh, he... He did what a lot of people weren't doing at that point in photography, and he was he was mining uh, the realities and the darker side and segregation and the issues in America as opposed to glossing them over and uh, celebrating the 50s. Um, his mother said, why do you always take pictures of poor people? Awesome. It wasn't true, but my sympathies were with people who struggled. There, were, there was also my mistrust of people who made the rules. I'm all for that. Uh, while driving in Arkansas, when he was doing the book, in November 1955, he was stopped by police officers, noticing that he spoke with a foreign accent and had a bottle of Hennessy cognac. <laughs> in his glove box, the officers asked Mr. Frank if he was a commie. He Clearly. Spent, he spent several hours in the local jail. That trip, I got to like black people so much more. Uh-huh. He said. But they don't often pull you over and ask if you're a commie because you have Hennessy in the car. <laughs> how do I love how a foreign accent in Hennessy makes you a commie. Would that make you a socialist now or would they just be jealous? <laughs> Jesus. Wow. Um, and then, you know, later he worked with the Stones. And this quote uh, is from The Guardian. Um I didn't care about the music, he told the Times, it's New York Times, in 2015. I cared about them. It was great to watch them, the excitement, but my job was after the show. What I was f- 
photographing was a kind of boredom. It's so difficult being famous. It's a horrendous life. <laughs> oh, really? <laughs> wow. Yeah. I found the D-list awesome myself. <laughs> I get nice tables. Well, I think... He, People say hi to us he, and no I, one hates me. I think me. it's interesting. He didn't think much about their life. Well, no. They lived in a fishbowl, as they say. Although, when you think about Aerosmith trying to innocently go into a bookstore, <laughs> on tour, playing the Oakland Coliseum, credited by you and Jen at the counter, really? and then he didn't buy a book or even ask about a book. He asked for a t-shirt and you guys had to produce one from behind the counter. And it wasn't one for him. No. It was a, one well, for his son. Well, and he told us that, which I thought was cute. Right. See how it all comes full circle? I don't even know what that means. Um, John Bolton is going to be here next week on the show, <laughs> along with Michael Bolton. Uh, they're doing a, a show called The, the, the Scroton Boltons, and uh, they're touring America. Um, I don't know if you know, but Orange 45 has called John Bolton Michael Bolton since he appointed him as the fourth national security advisor. And by the way, the first national security advisor sentencing is um, in December. takes place in December. Michael Flynn, who's guilty of tr basically treason, uh, but is going to be done and put in federal penitentiary for um, um, blabbing to the Russians while he was national security advisor. And lying advisor. to the FBI. The two things that you mustn't do. So he gets sentenced in December. The um, current national security advisor, some lackey uh, corporate dude that they've thrown in as acting national security advisor, which is how the Kremlin likes it. And then I can find you video. I, we were looking on, I can't remember who was it today, Holly Figueroa's uh, Twitter feed. And she had video of him calling him Michael Bolton like five different times. Mm -hmm. And not always Michael, sometimes Mike, Mike Bolton. Yeah, Mike. Who, who, by the way, isn't anybody. There's no one named Mike Bolton. There's Michael Bolton. And um, I expect to see uh, uh, John Bolton at Politicon uh, in Nashville at, at the end of October doing a panel with Kenny G. Uh, we really get to the bottom of this 90s uh, soft rock phenomenon and see if we can settle this shit with Mike Bolton. And, uh, and why won't Kenny G disclose his last name? Uh, I mean, is there an issue there? Why does mm -hmm. he have that? Suspicious. I mean, I remember, uh, uh, you know, uh, Voney M in England. They, they never explained why they only had an M at the end. And then there was um, Biz Marquis, which I'm sure was a, a nom de rap. Because he didn't spell it Marquis, as you recall. He spelled it Marquis. Mm-hmm. But clearly, like a sharpie. right? Clearly, like your favorite groups from Memphis, uh, the Marquis and the Barquets, mm -hmm. um, they spelled their name Marquis so that no one, because they thought if they put a Q in it, everyone would freak out and they'd never pronounce it right. So they actually it spelled is it. America, and we yeah. have to work and they're from the slowly. South, so they understood their their group. And the Bar <laughs> the Barquets had to actually spell their name with the K A Y S so that everyone would get it right. Um, this isn't rocket science, y'all. I don't know where that came from. I wanted to talk about a couple of things that we didn't get to in the last one. But uh, having said goodbye to John Bolton and wished him a proper uh, Viking um, farewell, uh, one of the great uh, underqualified um, fascist warmongering grifters that ever appeared on the American political scene uh, had no business being um, the Secretary of the United Nations and absolutely no business being National Security Advisor. Yeah. Um, Unbelievably underqualified, um, completely hollow and bereft of any um, intellect. Uh, when you think of the, the creeps that are usually national security advisors, there's a big new Brzezinski type. Sorry, Mika. Uh, I don't watch Morning Joe, so I don't think we're in any danger on this one. Um, and he was Carter's uh, yes. uh, national security advisor. And we were scared of him mm -hmm. uh, because you had to have those kind of trilateral commission George Schultz types. 
Warhawks. Well, Schultz was mm-hmm. was was Reagan's. Uh, oh, he was also Secretary of State, was he not? Yes. Mm. In any case, um, to give you an idea of how smoothly this well-oiled machine is running, um, the woman who was in charge of the Puerto Rico relief efforts um, after the hurricane uh, and the malfeasance therein was arrested by the FBI today. Um, mm-hmm. for Ben Bezling. Um, Along with others. Oh, many were. Uh, we're, we're not going to dwell on the story. We're just glancing on it because I don't want them to suck up all the oxygen in the room when I'm having fun. Um, <laughs> um, I'm going on the road with the Who's Line guys in uh, September and October. Really where? Thank you for asking. Uh, on the 18th, we'll be in Hamilton, Ontario. I know what you're thinking. Hamilton, Ontario? Yeah, that's the answer. Um, Kitchener, uh, Ontario after that. And then Mississauga, which is just outside of T.O., that's Toronto for our Canadian friends. I've learned to pronounce it over the years, and especially since we've had Dave Foley in the group off and on the last couple of years. Um, no one says Toronto. There's no T in it. It's T-R-O-N-N-O, Toronto. Um, and so he's like San Jose. Yeah, San Jose. Like, right, we're from the Bay Area. Santa Cruz. There's no, there's no T. Uh, Lynn will be in London, Ontario, which I've spent more birthdays in than you could possibly imagine. Not this year. Uh, then Calgary. Uh, actually, Drew will be there. I won't be there in Calgary. That's the 27th, the 28th of September um, in Edmonton, or to be more specific, Enoch, Alberta, uh, which is, or Enoch, which is right outside uh, Edmonton at the River Cree Casino, which I've watched go from having this weird theater where they used to put us in, um, at one point, mobile homes, so that was our boudoir and green room. And then at one point there was a mobile home inside the venue, which I didn't understand at all, and folding chairs and whatnot. And um, this terrible makeshift ladder that went to the stage. And the stage was, it's quite high, a rock and roll stage. So it can dominate this giant room. It's a 5,000 seater or whatever. Is this the one you said Joan Rivers That's had exactly it? where oh I'm getting. God. It was like, it, the ladder to the stage was like, I don't know if anyone's ever been in a submarine or on a Navy <laughs> ship, <laughs> right. but if you ever served and uh, if you ever served and if you've ever visited someone serving or gone to one of those, you know, fun ships, they, you, when you run up the ladder, it's an almost completely uh, um, uh, vertical climb. There's no grade really on a submarine or, or navy ship's ladder you kind of scootle right up that ladder and that's what the ladder to the stage was like so i would hover on the second to last step holding on to the it was like being in a swimming pool it had the swimming pool rails this is before you went on stage and they go like you know whatever bob Durkatch come out and play the theme and we and then i'd come on you know, greg proops and i'd run out and they go oh joan rivers played her many times and i'm like How? what did you do to her <laughs> Did someone have Scrambling to Scrambling in a Chanel suit? Her, yeah, she wore um, pumps and a Chanel suit or a skirt and, and like a wrap. And did someone lift her onto that stage? I mean, she was a tiger. I could imagine her charging up that staircase. Surely there's a better way. And bitching about it the whole time. That wasn't that venue, but it was another one in Canada where I asked how was Joan when she played there. I guess we're sent... Joan, it was the five-year anniversary of Joan swirling into the heavens about a week ago. And uh, so we've been on our mind lately. Um, she's been on our mind. And uh, they said to her, Miss Rivers, only one toilet works, the men's toilet, but we're going to put a sign on it and make sure it's dedicated and no one uses it but you. So she went, oh, oh fine. And then the, 10 minutes later, they said there was a handwritten sign that she had pasted to the men's room that said, don't anyone else use this room but Miss Rivers. She has crabs. And I go, what did you do with it? He went, I kept it. I kept it when she left. Um, she was so 
fucking funny. And then in the lobby of the Richmond Casino that we play in Richmond, British Columbia, um, th- there's two photos, Robin and Joan. And Robin's has a big picture of him. It's a, a, a face shot. And he's go- his says, oh, thank you. Oh, oh, best wishes. And Joan's says, there's an arrow pointing to her hand where there's an enormous diamond that would, you know, choke a bloody, the winner of the Preakness, right? A big ass diamond. And Joan has written on hers, girls, learn something. (laughs) He's old. And like, yeah, she'd written all over her picture. All over her picture. The arrow pointing to her head, look at this part, I got it done and shit. Like just unbelievably funny. Uh, then we're uh, moving out away from Canada and uh, heading to the Midwest. On my birthday, I'll be in Waukegan, Illinois. If you'd like to join me there, yes, I'll be accepting drinks. Um, and then we'll be in South Bend, Indiana on the 4th. Normal, Illinois on the 5th. Joliet, Illinois on the 6th. That's Jeff's birthday. Fort Wayne, Indiana on the 8th. Uh, Davenport, Iowa. Uh, then Harrisonburg, Virginia, Virginia. North Bethesda, which we've been discussing. And I've had a lot of people tweet me today about the whole controversy over North Bethesda. Does it exist? Does it not exist? Is it just a figment of our Bethesda-infused imaginations? Um, some people say they fancied it up, like, and they gave me an example of it. I can't remember what it was. Like, call, like we we live uh, um, in a neighborhood where there's a place called, is it called Carthay Circle? Yes. Yeah, one of the, the District of Congress or whatever uh, uh, in, in Hollywood has decided that one of the neighborhoods is called Carthay. And it's like, no one's ever called it that. And no one refers. Koreatown way too long before they got their sign. And now the Koreatown in Orange County, is it? No, they're going to yeah. give, um, uh, they're going to give them a, an Arabia town, a little Arabia yes. in um, Orange County, which is really cool. Because Orange County was hesitant in the old days to give out the uh, little Vietnam, little North Korea Maybe signs. Maybe it was that whole Confederate history. Yeah. And then now I think that, that um, awesomely, they carried Hillary in 2016. They carried oh, things uh, are different. a bunch of blue congr- Congress people in 2018. Um, the demographics of Orange County have mm-hmm. rocked their world. It's no longer blonde people of David Buster's coming at you. <laughs> Mind you, I'm not going there anytime soon. No. No. Uh, but they're nice. So uh, then Minneapolis, then Newark, and then um, Nightmare Before Christmas will be um, uh, under the baton of uh, John Mauchery. And this time we're visiting our friends in Europe. We'll be in Glasgow uh, December 2nd at the Hydro Center, London December 4th and 5th at Wembley, and Dublin December 8th at the Three Arena. Danny Elfman will be there uh, singing the score, Catherine O'Hare will be uh, singing Sally and Ken Page will be Oogie Boogie and uh, I'll be there too you'll see me I'll be wearing a fez I stand right next to John I'm almost impossible to miss um, and that's the funnest 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 thing in the world it really is is it funner than Whose Line? yes <laughs> um, I mean I love doing Whose Line but Whose Line doesn't have a full orchestra and I don't get to hear Catherine O'Hare and, and Ken Page and Danny throw down live every night so mm-hmm. it's just different I love all my children, but mostly the sons. Prescription eyewear shouldn't cost more than a plane ticket. With Warby Parker, you can get high-quality, good-looking prescription eyewear at a fraction of the price. 
Every pair is custom fit with anti-reflective polycarbonate prescription lenses, available exclusively through Warby Parker's website and retail stores. Simply take their quiz, answer a few quick questions, and they'll suggest great-looking glasses that are totally personalized to your face and style. With Warby Parker's free home try-on program, you can order five pairs of glasses and try them for five days. There's no obligation to buy. They even ship free and include a prepaid return shipping label. I can attest to that. Uh, glasses start at 95 clams, including prescription lenses, and include anti-glare and anti-scratch coatings. Blue light filtering lenses are also now available. If you have an iPhone X, download Warby Parker's app and use their brand new virtual try-on to see the realistic color, texture, and size of each style using just your iPhone. I got a pair of Warby Parker horn rims and I didn't like them and I sent them back and it was very convenient to do. But you'll get a pair of Warby Parker glasses that you love and then you'll keep them and you won't use the box to send them back in. But either way, it works really well and they do have nice glasses. Um, the home try-on is the excellent part because glasses are like shoes. If they don't fit, they're not going to fit. They can't be bent or made to fit. And that's why it's important to try them on before you buy them. I speak from being a glasses wearer from the age when it wasn't cool to be a glasses wearer. I think I was eight. Um, so when you're eight and you're four feet tall and you wear glasses, there's a lifetime of experience speaking behind this testimonial that I'm giving you right now. Head to warbyparker.com slash proops to order your free home try-on. That's warbyparker.com slash proofs. You get a free home try-on, take the quiz, and find a pair that's perfect for y'all today. That's warbyparker.com slash proofs. I thank you, and the smartest man in the world podcast thanks you. We've been talking about, um, um, you know, the people that have uh, swirled into the heavens this year, and I had uh, three heroes here. I'm just going to touch on them briefly because I don't want to beat this into the ground, but um, uh, these women all... Um, made it to a fantastic uh, stage in their life and also uh, were genuine heroes, I think. Uh, this one woman here, uh, Diet Eamon, uh, Dutch resistance hero who saved Jews during World War II. By the way, that's the headline of her obituary. Um, it began with a Jewish violinist named Herman who worked with Diet Eamon as a beautiful old bank in The Hague. He and his family received a summons in 1942, September, and they were being sent out of the country. They were instructed to take one small suitcase each. Ms. Eamon, a 22-year-old Christian, watched the Nazis with growing hawa. The Germans had invaded in 1940, overrunning the Netherlands in less than a week, and soon clamped down on the country's 140,000 Jews. Um, Jews were barred from trams, buses, parks, shops, then forbidden from certain quarters of the city. Does this sound familiar to anyone? Now they're being rounded up and deported. Does this sound even more familiar to anyone? Consulting her boyfriend, who'd read Hitler's autobiographical manifesto, Mein Kampf, um, which holds up one of the table legs, by the way, in John Bolton's toilette. <laughs> it's a used copy. And oh my God, is it dog-eared. Uh, of course, 45 has the connect the dots version. I just wanted to say connect the dots because no one's made that joke since <laughs> Mad Magazine in the 70s. I don't even know if connect the dots exists anymore. He had the Sudoku version. No, he wouldn't. There is no Sudoku version. And why would you use a number? Now I've turned it to Andy Kindler. Why is he talking about his jokes? Why doesn't he just tell them? Jay Leno's got a new show. It's called Shooting Jokes in Cars. Um, and feared the worst. She decided to take action. And this is where I think the exciting part begins. We've been talking about it a lot on the show. And a lot about the depression that sets in because you feel like you're powerless. Well, you're not powerless. You have lots of things you can do. You can boycott brands that don't do what you want uh, fiscally. Like, for instance, they support... 
um, open carry in their stores or they sell guns on their website or they support people you don't like, you can certainly withhold your money from them. You can also phone and otherwise make it known to your elected officials every minute of the goddamn day that you want them to do a particular thing. Um, that's absolutely what democracy is. Well, and as we're always uh, asking for people to call Mitch McConnell's seven offices, is it? Why, thank you for asking. Um, it's the Paducah office. Uh, Manalo Matos, who's a friend of our show and who is a constituent from Kentucky and who has given me um, awesome, awesome uh, Roberto Clemente book, and uh, we're buddies, says that this number is the best one to call. Jennifer got pushback um, from the cat, I don't remember which Louisville. office, Lexington, Louisville, and um, he ran the whole Chicago Talking Points gun thing by her. But Manalo claims that the Paducah, Kentucky office is always someone there and you never get the machine and they're nice and they don't um, engage in um, uh, false talking points. Mm -hmm. And that number is 270-442-4, excuse me, 4554. Two, when I was a, a DJ briefly in England, uh, we used to have to give out numbers on the air. And uh, what was that show, The Big Red Mug? Mm -hmm. we, I used to host that sometimes. There was this show on morning radio in England. And m the two producers, Marty and Ralph, um, we really got along well and we worked well together, but I couldn't read phone numbers because if it, British phone numbers in those days were 0207-524-528 or sometimes they'd be nine or ten, you know, like a really weird amount of numbers. And I would always lump the numbers in the wrong they way. They still are. Right, but they, I never read them the, the way they were supposed to be read. Like I'd go 02073 and they go, no, it's 0207-345 and I'd get, I, I've always felt like that. 270 442 4554-270-442-4554. Now, what will happen if you call um, a personal answer and go, um, Senator McConnell's office? And then you'll say, um, I'd like to leave a message for Senator McConnell. And then they'll go, um, okay, what is it regarding? And then you'll say, whatever it is regarding. In this instance, let's just say, for instance, it's gun control. Um, say that I'm real interested in um, having the Senate run a vote on all of the uh, bills that the Congress has passed regarding background checks, waiting periods, and the like. Um, I, my understanding is that they're waiting for the Senate to take them up. And then I would I love, since he is the majority leader mm -hmm. and has control of the agenda, I, I would adore it if, uh, you can put it however you like, I would adore it as a general way. <laughs> um, I think it'd be smashing if Senator McConnell um, would avail himself of the power that he holds and um, wave his magic wand and bring that um, to the floor without waiting, as he said for the last two weeks, to find out whether 45 will sign it or not. He has determined that the only way he's going to bring any gun legislation to the floor is if he has the guarantee that, because you remember what happened last yes. time, we're going to do background checks, we're going to do this, we're going to do that, then the NRA called and he crumbled mm -hmm. and nothing happened. Mm -hmm. So um, how it's, many, a, how it's a terrible reason. How many bills reason. is he sitting on? It's over 200. He called himself the Grim Reaper. Yeah. And um, our Nancy calls him. Right, the House has passed all of these. Yeah. Oh, we're ready to move on uh, 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 workers' rights. We're ready to move on. Um, uh, there's wage uh, uh, legislation waiting in the desk. Pharma loads of things. Um, Congress has been ferreting away the last year, ever since the uh, female, uh, the hundred and eighteen women got in there, yeah. and all of a sudden, action, baby. Mm -hmm. um, all the committees are in full tilt boogie this week. Um, uh, they're going to bring in um, uh, Flynn uh, for for uh, being a rat and not um, talking to Congress. They demanded him come in the 25th, I think it is, and they're bringing in um, everybody with this bloody Turnberry Air Force scandal. They're, yeah, it's all, all hands on. Uh, 
All hands on deck. And that's not a euphemism. What? Um, where were we? There we go. Oh, so uh, Ms. Eamon, uh, this is the best part. She decided to take action. And this is what we need to do, what you need to do. Uh, the couple, uh, by the way, her and her boyfriend, offered shelter uh, Ms. Herman with sympathetic farmers outside of town and then at Herman's request found a place for his fiance and her mother as well. Herman's sister soon joined asking for help. Within two weeks, she and her boyfriend, Hein um, Seitzma, were orchestrating shelter for 60 Jews, helping them avoid near certain death in the East where more than 100,000 Dutch Jews were systematically murdered, primarily at Auschwitz and Sobibor in German-occupied Poland. She told the Sioux City Journal quite later when she was in the Dutch underground, in the beginning, you have no idea the risk you're taking. Then you're so deep in it, you can't go back. She continued sheltering and supporting Jews in Sequel while running from the Gestapo, burying weapons under her parents' rose bushes, and suffering through three months in a concentration camp. She passed in Grand Rapids, Michigan, where she had volunteered for many years for the uninsured at a health clinic and flown to Latin America to work as an interpreter because she spoke Spanish. Um, Amazing. I would go on and on, but you can read her... Um, obituary because she got thrown in jail for helping. Um, her actual name is Deet Amen. She wrote a memoir called Things We Couldn't Say and um, she got a Righteous Among the Nations uh, um, which is a thing that uh, Jews give out. Uh, Israel's Yad Vashem Holocaust Remembrance Center gave her a Righteous Among the Nations um, um, you know, designation. She was hailed by the Dutch king, Willem Alexander, as one of our national heroes. Um, and he went to Michigan and sat in on performance of It Is Well, a ballet inspired by her actions in World War II. Now, the Dutch didn't all distinguish themselves in World War II. Mind you, no one's innocent. America didn't distinguish itself. Um, however, famously, um, in Holland, the police were quite helpful to the Nazis in rounding up Jews. Um, and, of course, the most famous of all um, Holocaust victims, Anne Frank, was found right there in Amsterdam. So Ms. Eamon's courage and her, that of her boyfriend and her whole family um, is... Well, it also illustrates how recent this is. Yeah, she just died. Yeah. Um, she just passed. And uh, this is a, a one little story, and then I'll, I'll move on to the next fabulous woman here. In late 42, now mind you, the beginning of the story started in September of 42, and she'd been aware of what was going on for two years because they'd gone from... Uh, uh, banning them from being in public, uh, to going to restaurants, to appearing, to having jobs, to deporting them, to sending them to the camps. She began visiting a small apartment where a middle-aged woman named Mies Valbem was sheltering 27 Jews, an astonishing number that she feared would attract attention. Ms. Amen found new hiding places for many of them, according to Yad Vashem, and visited the home five times a week to offer assistance, often finding new arrivals. They eventually uncovered the Rus, the Germans, and found a diary that referenced her under the alias Tus, T-O-O-S. Um, they became a fugitive. She traveled the country, and she was captured and arrested by the Gestapo. Under her blouse was an envelope filled with stolen ration cards and false papers. She saw an opening when one of the officers began showing off his new plastic raincoat. Are you following this? This is the Gestapo's daughter. They've just picked her up. She's in her 20s. She's got all of her stuff in her bra. 
Um, you think that it has a lot of pockets on the outside? You should see the inside. And all the Nazis gathered around to look at his raincoat, and she chucked the envelope out of her blouse. And they didn't find it. Um, she lived through going to a concentration camp. Um, I won't go into the details. She's a hero, and she's magnificent. And she was... Um, my mother would have been... My mother would have been... How old now? A hundred. A hundred. My mother would have been a hundred this year. Mm -hmm. This woman In July. Was, uh, was 99. Uh, Dorothy Olson um, was an aviatrix and flew with the wasps. She was 103. Um, uh, she wrote, I just love to fly. At the time, I was flying night missions as a woman Air Force service pilot over Moonlit, Texas during World War II. One of the few surviving wasps the long, unrecognized core of female pilots who flew vital domestic missions for the Army Air Forces during World War II. 103. This is one of the lines that I love in obituaries and why I never use the word die or anything because I think it's so summary. Her daughter confirmed her death but did not cite a specific cause. She was 103. How about that she was 103? There's a cause. I mean, I'm not trying to be cynical here. There are people older than 103, but... 103? She didn't cite a cause. You know, she hadn't been coming downstairs for breakfast the last couple days, and I wondered what was up. Uh, World War II was a total war. A woman wrote a book called Clipped Wings, The Rise and Fall of the Women Air Force Service Pilots. In her 20s, she paid for flight lessons to obtain a private flying license. 25,000 women applied to be wasps during the war. Wow. Can you dig it? 1,879 candidates accepted. And 1,074 completed the training program. They were the Women's Army uh, uh, Domestic Corps. She read a book called The Red Knight of Germany about the Red Baron when she was a little girl. <laughs> so her heroes, fantastically, were Lindbergh and the Red Baron, who were both thoroughgoing Nazis. But that just so happens they were great aviators. Uh, the inspiration of... It was something a girl could do if she could get somebody to teach her. They were often combined with the Women's Auxiliary Ferrying Squadron and the Women's Flying Training Detachment. Um, this is... Oh, let's see here. They flew 60 million miles. They were of critical importance. They ferried planes from factories to points of embarkation. They did test flights. They towed targets for gunnery practice, meaning with live ammunition, ships and planes would... Th these women would fly the target so they would lead it so you could shoot at the target. That's what they were doing during the war. It's just fantastic. Um, the government didn't treat us so well. A bay mate was killed in a plane crash and the rest of us had to take up a collection to get her back to Portland. They wouldn't play for it. She flew 20 types of planes and she was known for her moxie. She flew a plane upside down for a thrill. And then this one is the one that is the story I wanted to tell you. The moonlight came over Texas and the beauty of the night sky overcame her. I was able to get band, big band music. Dig, she's flying in the 40s over Texas, listening to jazz. It was the closest to heaven I've ever been. When I saw the lights of Coolidge Runway, I was excited and came in low and buzzed the bass. <laughs> <laughs> it was 11 o'clock, and I guess I woke everybody up. The commander had a few words for me. <laughs> Dorothy Olson is buzzing the bass up in the sky um, as we speak. If you look up there, you can see her. Um, Toni Morrison, ever so briefly. I don't mm. think we talked about her enough. Toni Morrison won a Nobel Prize. But the year that she was nominated for the Nobel Prize was a year that um, a bunch of writers uh, took matters into their own hands and 
um, got out the National Book Award and said, why won't you give Toni Morrison an award? And uh, finally, of course, she received one for the beloved. She got her Nobel Prize. She was only the second American and the first black woman, of course, um, to uh, get a Nobel Prize. Um, I wanted to read you some quotes here. Have we read these before on the show? I don't think we have. They're um, wonderful quotes. Yeah. Um, Racism will disappear when it's no longer profitable and no longer psychologically useful. And when that happens, it'll be gone. But at the moment, people like make a lot of money off it. These are all Toni Morrison. Racists always try to make you think they're the majority, but they never are. It's always the minority against all the poor, all the women, or all of the blacks. I don't think anything is more true than that. By the way, that's from a book called The River Sticks. And then this one, she is, quote, from The New Republic. This is just... I never asked Tolstoy to write for me, a little colored girl in Lorraine, Ohio. I never asked James Joyce not to mention Catholicism or the world of Dublin, never. And I don't know why I should be asked to explain your life to you. If I tried to write a universal novel, it would be water. It's because she wrote about the black experience through the eyes of black people. And white literary world had to wait a real long time. Oh, and she was always asked why she wasn't writing about white people. Mm. As if white people aren't in books about slavery. White people are in those books. Almost all books are about white people. Yeah. Um, One of our favorite cartoons that Jennifer showed me years ago. Books by men are downstairs. Um, Ms. Morrison placed African Americans, particularly women, at the heart of her writing at a time when they were largely relegated to the margins, both in literature and in life. I like that it's out of time. Um, I think you could still say that... uh, um, African-American women, um, as, as much magnificent progress has been made, are still looked at differently, um, valued differently, evaluated differently than the white media, particularly the white media that we get exposed to, you know, cable news, that type of kind of reactionary media, mm-hmm. um, really don't give black women a break. Um, they're either sassy or they're opinionated or they're this or they're that. And um, Well, considering people like Serena Williams still can't, get good health care when they're pregnant. Mm-hmm. And that 45 openly denigrates um, black people, uh, spent the last weekend denigrating black people, but black women seem to be a particular target for him, which is why I think um, Kamala scares him so much because I don't I don't know that he's ready to go full tilt boogie on her because I don't think it's going to work, you know. The, today's poll was that uh, less than 3% of black women in America support 45. And it was pointed out, I can't remember one There's of the a margin pundit, yes, of error one of 3%? Pundit, so one of the pundits said it might be negative one because yeah, the margin of error is 3%. Eric Baylor. Yeah. A 3% margin of error on all polls, and they were polling at 3%. So it might actually be under none. <laughs> well, what did he get last time? It was 94%, was it? Black women voted for Hillary? 94% yes. yeah. of the black women electorate. Among her best known works was Beloved. And this is the point I wanted to get out about looking at things through. Um, African-American women's eyes. She was tortured yet noble, um, Sede, the slave mother, who um, has to make a terrible Sophie's choice and does. Unavailable to pity is the way Toni Morrison um, put it. Uh, I just wanted to talk about her ever so briefly and graze on her a little bit because she's a titanic figure in American art and also an inspirational figure in a thousand ways. One of which is she wasn't published till she was 39. And 39-year-old black women don't get published that much. And then went on to have this illustrious career, which, of course, 
Um, we're all familiar with the movie of Beloved. We're all familiar with her work. She won a Nobel Prize. She um, didn't. She, it was in the second half, baby, mm -hmm. is all I'm saying. And this is something she said that I thought was Jennifer's giving me here. Your life is already artful, waiting, just waiting for you to make it art. That was at a commencement address. Um, an English teacher named Yvonne Devans Hutchinson said, I think her greatest contribution was when she said, I'm not writing for the white gaze. We're black and it's that blackness which she wanted to illuminate. This is who we are. We're part of this universe. And in capturing that experience, it's universal, it's human. Um, Toni Morrison uh, is always there, like Maya Angelou. Mm -hmm. And Maya Angelou wrote a poem that Jennifer read to me this week that I thought was really funny. And because I've been eating a lot of hot dogs lately. <laughs> well, I, I was looking up about her cookbooks, and uh, along with everything else that she did well, she also was a fabulous cook, and apparently she would dance and sing uh -huh. and love to entertain. And, and uh, for Nina Simone, James Baldwin... Uh, Toni Morrison right and uh, in the article was her poem which I don't remember the Health Food Diner yeah which is hilarious um, you may recall if you're of a certain age <coughs> bless you you may recall if you're of a certain age uh, at Bill Clinton's first inaugural um, much like JFK had done he requested his favorite poet and his favorite poet was Maya Angelou and she wrote that wonderful poem about America and that still gets done. She was a great speaker. She was tall. She was also quite a good dancer, quite a good singer, uh, as well as an awesome writer. Mm -hmm. um, and now we know, because Jennifer digs deep on everything, that she was a great cook. And what did we, what did we have? The well, we spaghetti made her, sauce? Her chicken salad. Oh, the chicken salad. It, it, <laughs> which was one of the last things the, the author of the article had, had shared with her. And at that point, Maya Angelou was on an oxygen... Uh, mask at the table, but had a glass of scotch. Yeah, her, her bag was scotch. Scotch and cigarettes. <laughs> uh, yeah, we've given the recipe for Rosa Parks um, flapjacks mm -hmm. on the show. But instead of giving you the recipe for Maya Angelou's chicken salad, which I can assure you is awesome, uh, it, this was, uh, and I had no idea this was her stance, The Health Food Diner by Maya Angelou. No sprouted wheat and soya shoots and Brussels in a cake. Carrot straw and spinach raw. Today I need a steak. Not thick brown rice and rice pilau or mushrooms creamed on toast. Turnips mashed and parsnips hashed. I am dreaming of a roast. <laughs> health food folks around the world are thinned by anxious zeal. They look for help in seafood kelp. I count on breaded veal. No smoking guns, raw mustard greens, zucchini by the ton, uncooked kale and bodies frail are sure to make me run. Two... <laughs> Loins of pork and chicken thighs and standing ribs so prime. Pork chops browned and fresh ground round. I crave them all the time. Irish stews and boiled corned beef and hot dogs by the scores or any place that saves a space for smoking carnivores. <laughs> <laughs> it's like Ogden Nash. Right? Very funny. Um, the last porpoise, uh, we mentioned that pastry chef in Birmingham. And, oh, yes, please. And I didn't remember her name. It's, it's DeLester Miles. And she's been the pastry chef at the Highlands Bar and Grill in Birmingham, Alabama for over 30 years. Oh, wow. And so last year, she finally got the Outstanding Pastry Chef Award from the James Beard Foundation. And it was a big deal because last year, more women and more people of color won awards 
for their work in the restaurant industry than ever before. And when you think about who works in the restaurant industry, hmm. that's pretty shocking. And I wanted to recommend somebody else who won, uh, I believe he was the first black man to win for uh, the the non-cookbook award for uh, James Beard Foundation. And it's Michael Twitty, and he won for The Cooking Gene, which uh, is described as a journey through African-American culinary history in the Old South. And it really is a history of America, of uh, the impact of enslaved people on what we think of American cuisine, who makes our food. It's a, it's a really profound, beautiful book. I heartily recommend. And I think the new edition has him, it's, it's annotated. There's more. He goes around to plantations and gives a history lesson, but also cooks the food of then. And when he first started, people questioned why he would want to do that as a black man from DC. And he's, by the way, he's gay and Jewish and black. And what about his husband? Right? They're, they're, they're cute little bears. Um, he, he said because uh, the enslaved uh, black people built the plantations, cooked all the food, uh, grew all the food, it would be most important for black people to reclaim that history and tell it from their point of view. The book is really good and um, unbelievably detailed about where people came from in Africa, where the food came mm -hmm. from. Well, they were bringing people over that whose talents they knew about. So they were stealing people who knew how to grow rice, who knew how to, who had various skills. Right. Building so skills. The people were coming from different parts of Africa because the slave trade was um, unbelievably complex and detailed. Mm -hmm. So people knew which villages, which parts of which country. Cheers. Uh, which did, which sort of uh, answers the question uh, how we would handle reparations because there's detailed lists of where these people were going and where they were where they came from and what they were doing. It's not like a, a big mystery. Uh, no, it wasn't vague at all. Uh, and having said that, I'd like to talk about uh, this today. Um, it was uh, the Black Congressional Caucus had a, a giant ceremony um, in the Capitol building today. Um, over, oh, in Congress rather, um, over, uh, uh, sorry, it's the 400th anniversary of slavery mm -hmm. in the United States. This is the day in 1619 that the first boat arrived yes. with enslaved people on it. Now, mind you, um, well, don't let me get off the track. In any case, um, the Black Caucus has tweeted about it all day today. And I wanted to read you a couple of their tweets. And by the way, it was a joyous ceremony. They had drummers and everybody um, put on um, pieces of African garb. And the Black Congressional Caucus, much to our credit, is a lot bigger than it was when it was two people yes. at one point. Uh, now there's dozens of people in the Black Congressional Caucus, including rock stars like Barbara Lee, uh, Maxine Waters, um, Ayanna Presley, and Laura Underwood. Um, John Lewis. Lauren Underwood, uh, John Lewis, um, uh, 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 I'm blanking on his name, uh, Hakeem Jeffries, mm -hmm. uh, um, um, Elijah Cummings. Elijah Cummings, thank you very much. I was scrabbling for his <laughs> name, but Elijah Cummings, who has given us so many um, deep thoughts on morality 
and uh, what's going on in the United States. A couple of quotes. The wealth from enslaved Africans and their labor created global capitalism and set the economic foundation for Europe, the Caribbean, and the Americas. According uh, to the uh, Smithsonian, by 1864, million enslaved people produced well over 60% of the nation's wealth, and the slave trade valued them at $2.7 billion. Um, so many people were ferried across uh, that it was the largest migration. The transatlantic slave trade was the largest coerced migration of human beings in the history of the world. 10 to 12 million enslaved Africans were transported across the Atlantic to the Americas between the 16th to the 19th century. Now, Brazil got the most slaves by a long margin. The Caribbean, after that, um, no, America did not lead the way in um, uh, abolition of slavery. England, yes, uh, stopped the slave trade 30 years before we did, and we forbade slaves to be imported to the country at one point. Um, however, we continued breeding mm -hmm, slaves mm -hmm. in this and, country. And selling them within the country. So there's all that. Um, the cotton gin uh, required um, more uh, slaves for the, for the cotton fields, and, uh, and these people were served. Uh, why are we talking about this? Because it's unbelievably important to remember that this isn't an isolated thing that you had nothing to do with. It's part of the history of the United States, and therefore you have something to do with it. Why? Because if you're listening to me and you live in the United States, or you're American, um, the wealth of the nation was built by this. There's not a lot of ways around it, and there's not a lot of ways to parse it. Um, are you supposed to feel guilty about it? I don't care how you feel about it. You should feel um, like you should be more curious about it. Let's put it that way. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell um, wrote today, um, let's see here. This is what he tweeted today. Just to give him a fair hearing, I'm going to read you what he tweeted first and then I'm going to give my opinion. Today, Congress observes the 400th anniversary of a reprehensible moment in the history of our land. The first recorded arrival of enslaved Africans in England's American colonies, the beginnings of our nation's original sin of slavery. However, he calls it a moment in the history of our land. I think you'll find it was 400 years and that it carries on through Jim Crow segregation, the Senate, the Electoral College, and the prison system and the police state, which are all remnants of the slave state. So there you are. Um, and uh, laws like um, trying to repeal Obamacare and things like um, enacting the tax cut for the rich are absolute remnants of what we would call, um, I like how everybody who's voter not a capitalist. Voter suppression. Right, a capitalist. Right, voter suppression, striking people in the rolls. These are all awesome slave um, owner tactics. Uh, People say there's socialism and capitalism, but we are not capitalists because we do not own the means of production. So I don't mean to be Mr. Technical about this. We live under a capitalist system when we try to earn money. If I owned all of the podcasts in the world and the ability for everyone to <laughs> broadcast, then I would be a real capitalist. And then you'd get more than Warby Parker on this show. Let me tell you <laughs> something, ladies and gentlemen. Let me finish what he wrote here. We marked this somber anniversary with grief for all the slaves whose God-given freedoms were so brutally denied, a bit like thoughts and prayers. Every American should take pride in the undeniable progress we have made in overcoming the terrible chapter that was opened 400 years ago. Overcoming? Yeah, no, the poverty no. rate's about 12% right now. And I'm guessing 
that the net worth of white people is um, generally a lot more than black people in the United States. That These aren't things I'm making up. These are statistical facts. American ideals of equality and justice, and this is the line that I want y'all to hear, because this is the majority leader in the Senate, the man who's stopping on the legislation, the man who kept Merrick Garland from sitting on the court, the man who made sure that Neil Gorsuch and Brett Kavanaugh were put on the court, the man that's desperate to repeal the, the um, Affordable Care Act, American ideals of equality and justice, not the sins of our forefathers, are the true deepest huh. bedrock of this great nation. So all of a sudden we're exonerated. Uh, so uh, to go back and put it in perspective, and this is from two weeks ago. Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell is a direct descendant of two slave owners in his family line. James McConnell and Richard Daly, two of Kentucky Republicans' great-great-grandfather. Did you know your great-great-grandfather? You knew your great-grandfather? Yes. I guess it's impossible to know your great-great-grandfather. Unless you're, who's it? James Knox Polk, who's the president who's still got a couple of grandchildren kicking around because he was 89 or whatever when he married the last. Um, James McConnell and Richard Daly, two of Kentucky Republicans' great-great-grandfathers, owned at least 14 slaves in Limestone County, Alabama. NBC reported, citing the 19th century census records, all but two of them were female. They had 12 women slaves. McConnell grew up in Limestone County, said he opposes reparations, the process of giving compensation to the descendants of slaves. The idea of reparations has recently animated the political debate surrounding racial injustice. I don't think reparations for something that happened 150 years ago when none of us currently living are responsible is a good idea. He said in June before a House committee that held hearings, we've tried to deal with our original sin of slavery by fighting a civil war. Um, Hmm. Mitch, your great-great-grandfathers were on the wrong side of that war. They were fighting to maintain slavery. So the Union fought the war to, um, as you say, uh, deal with the original sin. Um, I think you'll find your family didn't do that that much. And that I, the idea that the sins of our forefathers and that, what did you say? We're not responsible. We're not, none of us currently living are responsible. Let me just read this line again to you. James McConnell owned at least 14 slaves in Limestone County. Mm-hmm. What was his name? Hmm. Mm. McConnell. Uh, let's see here. We've tried to deal, uh, we've elected an African-American president. And in his mind, uh, having Obama Case be president. Closed. Yeah. It's pretty wild, you guys. It's pretty wild. That's all I have to say. Uh, the gym, the gyrations and the machinations and the um, flamboozling that people will go through to convince themselves that um, the fact that you're one of the wealthiest people in the Senate and that you are from Limestone County mm-hmm. and you can't see that the things that the slaves built for you are the reason why you're rich. You have no And there's that charming doing. photo of him grinning in front of the Confederate yes, flag. Yes, well, uh, Jennifer and I go to an awesome bookstore that Jennifer hit me to here in um, Los Angeles called Essawan. And if you watch, uh, what's Issa Rae's show called? Insecure. Insecure. Uh, there's an episode where she goes to... Uh, there's a couple of episodes where she's walking in front of it. Right, when they go buy Essawan books and yeah. they sell records and they sell, um, you know, African-American literature. And um, and James Fugate knows where everything is in the store. Mm. If you're looking for something in particular. It's a fun place. Yeah. Um, and there's places to eat in the neighborhood and whatnot. Um, and um, it's a, it's a, it ha- everything from Esoterica to Camo Bell's books there, everybody's book, and um, records, like I said. And I, I got one there called... Um, Black History White House. It was written about mm, seven, eight years ago when Obama was president by a historian and historian named Clarence Luzane. 
And uh, at the very beginning of the book, uh, the introduction is called Black People, White Houses. And I just wanted to read you the first sentence. I think I read it when I first got the book, but I wanted to read it again because I was reminded today on the 400th anniversary of slavery, um, our original sin. Um, and by the way, you're not responsible and everything you've done is cool. Uh, it, it, I was reminded of this uh, sentence here. I too am an American, Langston Hughes, from the poem, I too sing America. Even though black people were brought over, enslaved in boats, um, as soon as they got to America, they built it, um, planted all the food, and did all the cooking, and did all the work. So they have a real reason to feel like maybe they belong. And this is the opening of the book. More than one in four U.S. presidents were involved in human trafficking and slavery. These presidents bought, sold, bred, and enslaved black people for profit. Of the 12 presidents who were enslavers, more than half kept people in bondage at the White House. For this reason, there's little doubt that the first person of African descent to enter the White House or the presidential homes used in New York and Philly before the White House was built um, was complete was an enslaved person. That person's name and history are lost to obscurity and the tragic anonymity of slavery, which only underscores the jubilation expressed by tens of millions of African Americans and perhaps billions of other people around the world 220 years later on November 4th, 2008, when the people elected Barack Obama to be the nation's president and commander. Um, no one ever puts it that way. More than one in four U.S. presidents were involved in human trafficking and slavery, including James Knox Polk, who I mentioned before, who uh, uh, Andrew Jackson, uh, Thomas Jefferson, um, George Washington, um, much to his credit, not uh, John Adams, but Jefferson and Washington, obviously. Um, this book also puts it this way, I believe here. I, I, I don't want to get the sentence wrong. He says, Lincoln put an end to slavery, but not to racism. Um, if you think about the fact that the first black people to work at the White House were slaves, and that slaves helped build the White House, and that our current president um, spent the weekend slamming um, John Legend and Chrissy Teigen, that we've got um, issues that are uh, you know, reasonably worth talking about and discussing and being honest about. Um, Didn't Hercules, George Washington's chef, run away from the White House? He not only ran away, he successfully ran away. And George Washington, as we uh, use the term, uh, prosecuted him by sending people to chase Hercules down. They were unable to return him. I believe he moved to France. Yeah. I may be wrong about that. I think that's the theory. The last time I was in Philly, I went to the Liberty Bell. And um, if you want to die of boredom, there's two things you can do. Go to Independence Hall and go to the Liberty Bell. Now, Philly's amazing because, um, it, you know, it's really Washington before Washington. There, there, there was no Washington and they had to meet somewhere. And Philly was one of the bigger cities. Um, bigger than New York, I think, in those days, you know. Well, you know. And, of course, already, I'm assuming, in the 18th century, sort of awesomely racist, you know, and uh, like Philly is, you know, I'm hoping they were mean then, you know, like, oh, yeah, verily, may I have a tankard of ale? Hey, what does this look like? A fucking, you go, you go to your own fucking place. I've never seen comics abuse a crowd the way Philadelphia comics abuse the Philly crowd. And I've never seen a crowd love it more than the Philly crowd. I, I really enjoy playing there. Um, uh, and I don't mean all Philadelphians are awesomely racist. They're not. Obviously, Philly's quite black and has had black mayors famously for years and years and years. But there is one cheesesteak shop there that says English only. 
And that's just, and um, uh, 45 went there when he campaigned. He went to the one cheesesteak shop in Philly that's openly racist in a city that's so mixed. You know, there's Italians, everybody's in Philly, right? Like, and they're like, what if Jersey was like angry at you? It's kind of like what Philly is. It's got that thing going on. The food's okay. Mm-hmm. Some of my favorite delis and, and Italian places. I worked with a comic from Philly there and he came on and he goes, my father's here this weekend. I go, do you live in Philly anymore? He goes, no, I fucking moved to Brooklyn and everybody fucking hates me for it because you're never supposed to improve yourself if you're from this fucking city. And then he goes on stage and he goes, you fucking apes, you fucking apes. And they're screaming. That was his opener. He goes, my dad's here this weekend to see me. I go, oh, that's nice. Where is he? He goes, he's at the bar getting drunk on red wine. Like that. And he was the fucking... Somebody gave you a... A wine glass they made. Mm. When we're Remember in Philadelphia, in Philadelphia. Yeah, a weird, weird, purpley bluish goblet. Yeah, it was, yeah. it was, yeah. When we did the book, we did a book event on Mother's Day it was in Philly. One of two wine goblets. Yes, you were gifted. Thank you for remembering that. Um, the other one was in Chicago. You were with me at one of the most un, uh, sparsely attended podcasts we had <laughs> ever done. Um, I've played uh, the Helium in Philly many times. The most popular episode of the podcast we ever did was like from, I think, 2011 or 2012. It was July 3rd in Philly or July 5th. It was one some weird ass. I don't know why, but that one had more downloads than any. I play a bunch of soul music, of course. I play the spinners, all the Gamble and Huff stuff. Because Teddy Pendergrass was from Philly and Harry, Harold Melvin and the Blue Notes, Hollow Notes. There's so many great groups from Philly that I couldn't resist. And I got crazy in the hotel room and made this giant playlist and played like 5,000 soul songs. And of course, the crowd was like, hey. This is nice. Because Philly's one of those places like Ohio, where if you play proud. soul music, proud. white people know it. You know, you yeah. go to the Northeast and other places, the Midwest, upper Midwest, not Minneapolis. But Minneapolis, I started to sing Purple Rain on stage at a casino in the middle of nowhere called Fond du Lac. And the whole crowd started singing Purple Raid. And that was, yeah, no, they, they're on the tip. Um, so uh, Philly, to get back to it. Uh, <laughs> yes. I was at the Liberty Bell. And it's one of those great symbols of American history. Because like the Constitution or whatever, it excludes as many people as it includes. It, at, at once, the Liberty Bell is a clarion call to white supremacy, and at the, at the same time, this symbol that the bell rings for everybody and all that. And next to the picture, uh, next to the Liberty Bell, was a giant photograph of um, the centenary of the Liberty Bell in 1876 with a bunch of suffragettes who were protesting that they didn't get the vote, and why should they fucking celebrate the Liberty Bell? And the other giant display there was of Hercules, George Washington's famous French chef who was Mm -hmm. a slave. Obviously, his name was not Hercules. He'd been given the name Hercules. And and he had enough of um, General and President Washington's hospitality that he decided he wanted to split at a certain point and live his life. And those were the two things I remember from standing in front of the Liberty Bell where the women felt, and black people felt, yeah. And hey, let freedom ring. Hats off to Johnny Freedom. Being the oldest white guy at this table, I'd like to take a few <laughs> moments now to give my opinion. 
<laughs> the thing about Mitch McConnell is he's got it right. Well, you can't be responsible for the money that your great-great-grandfathers made. My goodness, no. Why don't we start a charitable foundation and then we can have some people on the board that take money from nefarious billionaires who come by rather than paying their taxes. That's how philanthropy works. As Warren Thomas once said, Chevron, throwing the public a bone so they don't burn our shit to the ground. So true. Um, having said that, and coming back to the anniversary of slavery, um, a woman named, uh, who works at the New York Times, Nicole Hannah-Jones, who goes by Ida Bay Wells mm-hmm. on, on Twitter, and it, you should be following her because she's got quite a lot to say, um, she provided the intellectual framework, as the Times puts it here, for the 1619 Project, which is the very lengthy and extensive um, exploration of slavery, historically and uh, contemporarily, by uh, dozens of writers. And um, you can buy a New York Times hard copy of it from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. You can go on the New York Times site and subscribe to the New York Times, and then I think you'll... Do you get one then? Do you earn one? Because it was part of a giant supplement. It's quite long. Right. Schools are ordering them. Well, it's a, it's a piece of history, and mm-hmm. she helped orchestrate it. And it's an enormously important piece of history. Um, and I'm going to get you a free one. PulitzerCenter.org, stroke, sites, stroke, default, stroke, files, stroke, full, underscore, issue, underscore, of, underscore, the, underscore, 1619, underscore, project, period, PDF. <laughs> it's long, but if you go to the PulitzerCenter.org. It's a PDF. Hmm? Is it dot .pdf? Dot .pdf. No, yeah, the project dot .pdf. Thank you, Ryan. How did I say period? I, I went back to the semicolon. What, I'm Victor Borga. What did you do? Did anyone remember that routine? What if the punctuation had to be spoken? The question mark would go, wow. Nobody? Uh, anyways, it, it's, it's a very wonderful and worthy. The introductory page is by Nicole Hannah-Jones. Um, Kevin M. Cruz, Jamel Bowie, uh, Khalil Gibran, uh, there's uh, Geneva uh, Aduyam, uh, let's see here, there's just loads, there we are, uh, Daryl Pinckney, uh, Tayahimba Jess on the Black Seminoles, Yasmin Ward uh, on the Act Prohibiting Importation of Slaves, Clint Smith, um, many of these names will be familiar to you if you read uh, Twitter uh, or, or follow these journalists, on the Superdome after... Hurricane Katrina, uh, Rita Dove and Kamel T. Dungey on the 16th Street Baptist Church bombing, well, Lynn Nottage on the birth of hip-hop. So it's, it's, it's comprehensive. It's, it's, be- it's beautifully put together. I haven't cracked into it all the way yet because mm-hmm. it's, it's a commitment. Um, but I wanted to hip you to the jive. I know I've mentioned it before on the show, but I think it's a... Um, rather than ask me any more questions or give my opinion anymore about the state of this, maybe reading this will kind of... Well, I think it's essential to know our history. I do too. Uh, And a lot more people could be uh, down with the jive uh, as far as the truth of our history. Uh, Because as one of my fine, fine comedy routines used to go, um, we're told a lot of lies in American history. Really, which ones? All of them. Mm Mm-hmm. Um, September is, is also the anniversary of the assassination of Crazy Horse. Oh, my goodness, Crazy Horse. Yeah. Uh, one of a, a, a great American. Or I said that the other day, and you said, I don't think he'd appreciate being called a great American. Yeah, not an American. Mm-hmm. Maybe one of the greatest Americans. Um, Crazy Horse, of course. Lakota. 
was, yeah, Lakota Sioux. Um, he uh, was assassinated by, uh, you know, basically forces of the government. Um, and there's an article about him, uh, if you wish to read about a Crazy Horse, in Teen Vogue, of all places, because Teen Vogue got super hip. Mm -hmm. Ruth Hopkins wrote it. It's from September 5th, and it's called OG History. And if you go to Teen Vogue, which is free, I believe. Mm -hmm. I don't think there's a fire paywall. Mm -mm. Um, although... I would urge you, uh, much like Sheena Easton, to spend the night inside my sugar walls. What to know about really? Crazy Horse on the anniversary of his assassination. Um, September 5th is when um, uh, they uh, got to Crazy Horse, and his real name was uh, Tosunki Witko. Um, he was bayoneted in the back in 1877 in Nebraska, but he was a renowned leader uh, of the Lakota people. And... Um, the U.S. Cavalry was mortified of him uh, in so much as uh, he was quite a good cavalry officer himself and he led um, several battles, the Fetterman fight, the Battle of the Rosebud, and then the most famous one, which was the largest victory for the Lakota nations, um, the Greasy Grass, which we call the Little Big Horn. Um, he never signed a treaty um, and his brilliance for the Red Cloud War paved the way for the Fort Laramie Treaty of 1868, which established the Lakota Territory and sealed their claim to the Black Hills, which they still have. So he's, a, he's an important figure uh, in American history and certainly one of the most romantic ones. I don't know that he let anyone take his picture of her. I don't think so. There's loads of pictures of Red Cloud and there's mm -hmm. loads of pictures of Sitting Bull. And um, yeah, I don't, I don't think he was down with that. I remember reading it that he, uh, yeah, he was Oglala and Mini Kanju Lakota. He was um, a nonconformist, as they say here. Yeah, he had a vision quest, um, and he saw a man riding on horseback in a thunderstorm, and the man wore his hair loose with a single feather tied to it and a lightning bolt painted on his face with hailstones dotting his body. People reached out to grasp but could not hold him. Crazy Horse realized he'd become that fierce man and he would fight for his people. He was directed to toss dust over his horse and place a stone behind his ear before battle and told that as long as he took nothing for himself, no bullet or arrow could kill him. Uh, yeah, it's pretty exciting. Um, he, his wife was black buffalo woman and she left her husband uh, to be with Crazy Horse. Um... Here it is, that's the one. Lakota historians and biographers believe Crazy Horse didn't sit for photographs, nor according to his biography on the National Park Service website, did he talk to Western reporters. Um, he wouldn't do interviews, whereas, um, as I said, Red Cloud and Sitting Bull obviously did. Sitting Bull was in Buffalo Bill Cody's show. Mm -hmm. uh, Red Cloud went to Washington and was a famously a lobbyist there and uh, you know, dined with the elite and whatnot. But Crazy Horse wasn't wasn't buying any of that. Uh, anything else before we? Yeah, I, I was just going to bring up, a, and I, I don't know where it went. I somehow deleted it. The um, John Coltrane's uh, cousin died, and I, I love died this week, I think. And um, where did I go? Was he a musician as well? She. Here it is. I've already told the boring high point story five times. Right. Well, I, I don't have to bring it up. I, I only like that, that um, 
he he bought the house that she lived in with um, the GI loan money he got in 52 and left in Philadelphia. And he left that house to join Miles Davis's band. Like he went as a teenager, just boom. Coltrane's cousin? Uh, Coltrane. Coltrane. Ah. And she lived in the house until she died. And he wrote Cousin Mary for her, which was on his debut album. And she didn't realize how much he respected her. And so she made it her mission the rest of her life to uh, instill love of jazz in kids. And, really? Yeah. And, and she had a jazz foundation and uh, she would have jazz bands uh, perform at various functions. But at the end of the article, it said she was an astute critic with a playful sense of humor. If she didn't, if she went to, to a gig and she didn't like it, she'd say, well, I wasn't on the edge of my seat. <laughs> uh, on that note, uh, we spit a Judah Cousin Barry. May every page you turn be a satchel page. May every bell that rings for you be a cool papa ball. And if you have to buy bonds, make sure they're Barry bonds. On behalf of Jennifer and Ryan, this is Greg Proops, wishing you nothing but peace and love. And this is Cousin Mary by John Coltrane. <laughs>